blessed <laughs> yeah hashtag, hashtag blessed the negative is joining us tonight on the podcast <laughs> consider me as like brand new to socialist organizing and at the same time sort of steeped in a lot of this dialectical pessimistic malarkey so i kind of want to like a lot of this i want to sort of center the conversation around like if you were in my position what would you do <laughs> or like if you're going like you know what are the mistakes you think you've learned from in your history and socialist organizing and like moving forward i guess right off the top of my head the answers to both questions despair <laughs> and not having despaired enough Ooh. so are we so already like, in the uh, thick of it here is are wait, we already starting <laughs> what would you do in my situation i would despair what's your biggest mistake in your organizing history well i wasn't despairing enough i hadn't stared hard enough into the void i only glanced at it. i only right. side-eyed the void i needed to turn and gaze directly into the void <laughs> That's right. It dipped my whole face inside of the void. <laughs> Just like, you know, pat pat some on my cheeks, pat some of the void on my cheeks, on my nether regions. Stick, you got to stick your face in the void and blow bubbles like a dog on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I will try to also be helpful in addition to, you know, that. Being assholes. I mean, that's the point. <laughs> yeah. Well, well it's just that one of them comes naturally. The other ones work. <laughs> <laughs> Do the one that comes naturally then. Well, I'll hold this and I'll, when I pontificate. Oh, fuck yeah. Is that your Louis Altus air pipe? That's right. That's, yeah. I think it's spot on. It looks nice. You know, it's funny. I was driving for a few hours before we started recording, and I, for some reason, just could not get the image out of my mind of the Pepe frog, but the Louis Altus air variation on the Pepe frog. Have you seen this? <laughs> I haven't yet. I'm oh, so what's awesome. the point of, I'll send it to you. What's the point of the Discord if you're not posting that? I know. Well, I, I stumbled across it a long time ago, and then I just... I never saved it. I, I'll find it. But the thing I was thinking about is, you know, who the fuck is out there who's like, hey, I really love Althusser, and I feel like he has big Pepe the Frog energy, so I'm going to make a Pepe the Frog version of Louis Althusser. I'm just like, what kind of niche, just fucking bizarre, deranged world do you live in, and can we be friends? <laughs> if you're out there, Louis Althusser, Pepe Frog creator. Hit me I mean, up. It could be Herbert's. Oh, not Herbert Spencer. What's his name? Spencer, Richard Spencer. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if it's a Pepe meme, it probably is not someone we really want to interact with. <laughs> I'll just go ahead and put that out there. Yeah, but the fact just, that it's all through Zara is just baffling to me. Like, what am I supposed to take from that? What you're supposed to take from that is that the internet has proven many times over to have been a mistake. Actually, I am strongly in favor of that position. So you're, you're right, Comrade. Thank you for correcting me. Am I remembering the rule number incorrectly? Is it rule 34 that... that if, <laughs> It exists on the internet then there's a uh, there's porn of it so i think that's yeah. what you're supposed to take from it adam is that is that <laughs> pepe the frog exists somewhere in that format that's in your brain now well my and brain on that is note already, <laughs> yeah on that note why don't we kick off our uh our episode of 
well, here we are still after all. This is kind of a special one. It's uh, we're, we're down a few comrades tonight. They got taken out by obligations and natural disasters, inclement weather. So it's uh, it's me, Comrade Adam, for Red Library here. Comrade Commissar of Degeneracy Alex from Red Library as well. <laughs> Jason from the Regrettable Century. Comrade claps a lot from the Discord in New Zealand, heaven at the moment. Do you want to step back from your microphone and clap? Because we're in the presence of fucking Discord royalty in here. <laughs> Everyone's solid slash for Comrade Lassel. <laughs> Glad that sort of came about properly in the Discord, as I wanted it to. Yeah, I, I gotta mean... say, I, I miss when your name was misspelled. <laughs> oh, fuck, I was planning not to change it. I was like, oh, no, 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 I gotta do it because I'm already dyslexic. I gotta show I'm not. It's okay, Comrade. <laughs> That's the negation of the negation of the Conrad variation is now, what was it, Comrade? <laughs> Comard. Comard. We'll just inexplicably oh, start shit. saying that to everyone now. Just call everybody no, Comard. Comard. <laughs> Unlike Bane, we do not have a plan for this episode, <laughs> or we have a very loose plan. This is actually Comard claps a lot. This was kind of your idea. So we wanted to talk about dialectical pessimism, but very specifically as it relates to real on the ground concrete organizing, uh, maybe experiences that we've had in the past ideas of how to integrate dp thought which i just like calling it a dp thought almost as a, <laughs> as a like snarky allusion to mao zedong thought <laughs> i see I see alex shaking his head at that but we want to talk about that and then just dp's relationship to socialism in general and i mean we have a couple of sources i don't know if we're gonna really use those a whole lot we'll kind of see how it goes so yeah, i mean it's gonna be a bit of a fucking hurricane of a podcast but it's because it, like a lot of it's my perverse sort of like shit i want to talk to these guys about something that like help me personally so i'm a bit of a greedy bastard in that sense but yeah i mean my reason to want to sort of talk to you guys is about because i'm so new to socialist organizing like i'm only 28 and i've you know did a master's in political science at the university in wellington here and now i'm a professional managerial piece of shit who kind of sells his soul by selling commodities so i work with panasonic so like it's a we sell garbage to people and then we feel real good about it but like uh, <laughs> there's a lot of people in my sort of social circles who are not necessarily like you know they're basically not essential workers like we're all pretty much middle class a lot of, of people are like politically apathetic i guess and um the main problem i'm finding already in my socialist organizing is there's a sort of a, a willingness to disregard middle class people from organizing like they're not like truly authentically working class and you know in fact most of the time they end up signing you know on the hegemonic ideas of the culture rather than sort of wanting to transcend them so it's tough for me to be to be a pmc and be in a socialist organization as well i just find it quite it's not that they're not wanting to but they just think like it's like where do you sort of direct the the, the emphasis i guess and they just hmm. sort of are confused can i just start off this this whole discussion i'm gonna hack this conversation just let you know <laughs> that i had a weird I had a weird brain where just jump into my head as soon as you said PMC, and I just heard, yo, PMC, yeah, you know me. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I had to share that before we start. I got to get it you out. You down with OPP or not? Yo, you down with PMC or OPP? You know me, man. I'm actually not down with PMC. We can get into that, but I like barely recognize it as a, as a category. Like I know it exists, so we have to contend with it, mm. but I, I don't find it to be 
terribly useful and probably even for the reasons why you want to talk about it. So, yeah, uh, I mean, we, we can get into that at some point, but I suppose that would mean we'd have to, for the sake of the discussion, define what we mean by that, by professional managerial class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll probably also need to define what we mean by middle class if we're going to have this discussion at all. As we well, might even so. have to define what we mean by class. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the fucking like on our program for Organize Our Tito, we've just got these bullet points. It's like revolution. Yep. Tick. What do we mean by it? a change in like the social forces of production? Da da da. Uh, class people who don't own property. Tick. And I'm just like, oh my god, that's, I'm sure we're gonna have to talk a lot longer than just a little sentence of it. But yeah, I'm gonna jump in and CC Alex, you you hop in as well because I, I'm really excited for this discussion because all three of us. And I, I just want to say this too, claps a lot, is that in a truly perverse sense, you deny the law to invoke the law. You have actually succeeded in being a truly perverted subject because you've invoked us like we are here. Now we're here to talk to you. You've you've actually achieved your desire I, and it might destroy you <laughs> by, by it actually showing well, up. Well, uh, it's almost like getting stayed fright when you're standing a year in I don't know how to pee now. <laughs> That's all right. I've been paying myself since we started. But I will tell you that me and Cece Alex have, yeah, have done a lot of organizing together. And then Jason, even though we don't live in the same city now, we have run around in the same circles and probably know a lot of the same people. So even though we're not, we all three of us haven't organized together, I feel like we have a lot of linkages of the actual organizing experiences that we do have. So I think it'll be really interesting to actually, you know, kind of talk about this shit, not as a bunch of fucking nerds, but as people who are you know, actually involved in organizing too. So it's it's true. We have polluted the same environment with our pre-pessimistic socialism. That's true. I have definitely done that. Why don't we start with a uh, professional managerial class or middle class, whichever one? Start with dispatching them, or, or what? Are we yeah, doing? for sure. Just, I... Let's just like what, <laughs> let's defining the the terms that we are either going to uphold or or uh, cast down, whichever one we decide to do. The first time I came across it was uh, it was. I think Derek Barton was sort of talking about it, and I don't think he agrees with the sort of um, existence of it as something that's like you know, truly concrete and sort of class relations, I guess. But yeah, I mean, the way I sort of interpret it was like, basically, if you're not a blue collar worker, you know, you're working for a big corporation or you're working in the public service sector or your labor isn't going to produce a commodity, it's going to service the transactions of commodities, I guess. All right. So right away, I want to pull out my fucking dialectical pessimism scimitar and just fucking hack at this thing. Just pop, 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 pop. So (laughs) right away, my thought about this term, whenever I've heard it deployed, is in my own understanding of the sort of changing nature of labor and work and class structure and relations, at least in the US, just because that's, that's our context or my context. I mean, my understanding of that is very much grounded in a particular sort of creation of a substrata that is there to mediate between like, quote unquote, the workers or the working class and the actual capitalists who own the means of production and that the PMC are there, you know, as white collar workers, but also as, I mean, they're the managerial class. They're the managers that are there to sort of mitigate and mediate between capitalist owners of the means of production and the workers themselves. Whenever I hear this term thrown around, I I think the question for me would be like, one, whenever it's being utilized, are we talking about it in a similar way? Like, is that what we're talking about? Like that that's kind of the role that those, those people who occupy that class position play. And then number two would be, are we using it in the way that is almost uh, not dialectically pessimist enough or not actually understanding that this is a, a formulation that maybe was very um, novel and very clear how it was functioning 60 years ago, but 
how much does that match up to now? Because to me, a lot of these concepts and, and the whole point of I see of how we approach things collectively with, with the shows is that just asking like, okay, how do I define or understand this concept now versus just buying it wholesale from when it was initially developed? So that, that would be one thing I would throw out if y'all want to take a stab at how you would think through those aspects of it. Maybe my thoughts just initially, because I don't really have anything. I got like two, you know, brain cells working up in there still. So it's not, not a lot going on, but, but I guess just initially I'm like, this is a term that uh, this like professional managerial class idea is like a term that in some sense was supposed to be that gray zone of like the guys who stand in between the bosses and the workers and like sort of mitigate or or maybe work as the oil you know between those gears that normally grind to like they they try to like smooth things out or whatever and i just wonder about you know it kind of brings up maybe like a delusion idea of like societies of control um and like how access is more what's being manipulated you know or being being denied to people in today's society and i just wonder how classes like this if we could call this a class or like ideas of people's functionality in the workplace like this can can sort of facilitate that denial of access maybe that would be my initial position so it seems to me that professional managerial class is a an attempt and it's seems to be a good faith attempt and an educated attempt to deal with a historic problem of categorization which is a political problem, ultimately, that has plagued the, the left in the, let's call it, developed world or the first world or the Western world for much longer than the term itself has been in existence because of the fuzzy space that we sometimes call middle class, but that actually only describes where on the scale, it doesn't actually describe our relations to production. Um, and it seems to be a, a replacement for a terrible misuse of petit bourgeois that we, mm. you know, so for like decades, you have a petit bourgeois sentiments and petit bourgeois tendencies, whatever, which is to say that like, despite the fact that you have like a white collar and you receive a wage, your thinking is more like that of a doctor or a lawyer or someone who is literally like owner of their labor power and control over how it's used, but doesn't employ anybody, you know, like small capitalist, like literally mm -hmm. speaking, because it's not the case that as an administrator of a facility or as a person who answers the phone in the call center, or uh, I'll use my own example, a person who works like as a researcher or associate producer in television, it's actually not the case that a class position is like that of the person who owns their barbershop. But neither is it like a similar temporal experience of a factory worker. And so it's difficult to like navigate. And so we come up with a new way of explaining it, which I think is a closer approximation to the truth, but still misses the mark, which is professional managerial class. And the reason why it's off the mark is because it invents a new kind of class which to me suggests that we actually think that there are distinct class interests between white collar workers and blue collar workers. And I would reject the notion just out of hand. And it does raise different questions, which I think are more the, the actual question we want to get at, which is how does this help you navigate the political and economic terrain in terms of your organizing strategy or political work, the way you write an analysis, propaganda, et cetera. So like, I think, I, again, I think it's a good faith effort at something, but I, I still think it gets it a little bit wrong because the real debate is between blue collar and white collar workers and what their interests are and what our focus is meant to be in some world historic sense. Because there's a, there's a quote in the article, sorry, I don't remember what the fuck it's called, who it's by, Adam sent me and it goes, so the situationists include within the proletariat, both the workers involved in the process of production, as well as those white collar workers in the surface sector 
who possesses the ability to rebel or rebel against reification. That's kind of, yeah, the, the type of like realigning together those two um, colored collars, if you like, mm-hmm. into something that's like a, a revolutionary movement. And so that's sort of, yeah, what I, I really want to focus on as sort of being, you know, new to organizing is how does someone like myself both convince sick life, because a lot of these people come from sex and stuff like that how do i convince them that this isn't about subcultures this is about creating countercultures how to create something that's um you know a new hegemony yeah i've sort of lost where i'm going with it but someone could come in and help me out that'd be great (laughs) come wipe me zaddy (laughs) (laughs) wait a minute (laughs) well right so like you know there's the old maxim i i think it's attributed to lennon doesn't really matter where it comes from but like to really figure out the answer to a question is you have to look at like who benefits from a given arrangement. What are the supposed distinct class interests of what we're calling the professional managerial class? Like distinct from the working class, distinct from the proletariat? Because it doesn't seem to me, even just at the surface anyways, that there are distinct interests, right? Maybe it's being a dock worker is like harder work physically than sitting in an office and filling out spreadsheets all the time. But like, what is the problem with your job? Ultimately, it's the relationship that your labor power has to capital, which is to say that you have to sell it in order to receive some bit of what you produce in value back in order to survive. So the way in which the distinct class interests are measurable for what we call the petty bourgeoisie is like, if you own, you you know, like the, the class interest for like a small farmer is like, I want to own my farm outright and not have to keep paying the bank in order to keep using it. Or uh, taxes are too high when I fill out my 1099 form so that my small, like my grocery store or bike repair shop or whatever, like, even though I work really hard, I'm making less money than the dock worker who has a union contract. So like, I want to lower taxes on business or I want to get rid of a minimum wage so that I can hire a you know, my nephew and have some hand, extra help around the shop or whatever. Just right away, I think that that's the starting point is like figuring out what the actual interests are of people in these given categories. Of course, I don't think that that like that deals with it. Like that settles the question. I think that begins to a- to ask the right questions. From my perspective as a social worker, this question is one of like extreme sharpness and relevance because I'm technically a professional. And whenever I think about the history of like my quote unquote profession, it has always in some ways like calling it a profession is to paper over a really contentious political history of what it actually meant to be a social worker that sort of has changed depending on the larger political and economic conditions of the time. So early on in social work's history, there was a doctor named Abraham Flexner who gave a talk at a like a big conference. I think this was in like the late 19-teens or early 1920s. And it was called, uh, it was basically him saying, is social work a profession? And it created this huge ideological crisis in the field because essentially at that point, social workers were not licensed professionals. They were doing like what was in the early days was called casework. They were going and like helping people who were typically poor and, you know, dealing with all sorts of like major mental health crises, although they wouldn't have called them that at the time. But whenever Flexner gave this speech, it created this huge crisis. And what social work started to do was to say, the only way to be legitimate 
is to have an actual clearly defined profession that we're all a part of. And so they came up with a code of ethics. They came up with, you know, organizations that would represent and try to safeguard the profession and gatekeep and all this other stuff. And I think what you've seen in my in my field, and you know, this is coming from someone who has done organizing and like anarchist groups and Marxist Leninist groups and Maoist groups, but then but now, and I'll just be really clear about this, I have essentially consciously decided not to organize in those particular ways and focus on organizing within like my field or my profession right now. And that's kind of mostly my my actual organizing work around labor is around like social work because this history for me has been really important because whenever social work was professionalized, what you started to see was that there was this like sort of battle of class interests. And, and I don't think it's resolved. It's not even close to being resolved and it's always contentious, but it was, well, should we be professionals and start to adopt the practices of psychotherapy, psychology, psychoanalysis, psychiatry? That became really, really pertinent after World War II. You got a lot of vets coming back with like what was no one called it this then, but like PTSD and like shell shock. So social work started to adopt the practices of psychiatry precisely to make themselves more legitimate, increase the reach of their field, increase opportunities. But all throughout this time, depending on the period we're in, in the, in the field, in the U.S. at least, and I think there's a good case to be made that this is actually a little bit more radical in like the U.K. because of the National Health Service, you see that social workers will like at certain points will call themselves professionals and we'll focus on like being in private practice, like being kind of like petit bourgeois, right? They have their own businesses, they control their own labor power, they're usually not employing other people. Like they kind of fit that standard pretty pretty clearly to me, depending on how you define it. But at other points, and this is always kind of happening in its intention, there are social workers who work in hospitals, who, who work in schools. My role, I work in a nonprofit, right? And honestly, like the labor conditions, you're horribly exploited. You're fucking like just brutalized in the kind of work that you do. You're paid shit. Like you're not valued materially. You're not valued like culturally at most of the organizations. So for me, like this question was always a, an interesting one. And it's like a really personal one because I I've organized with people where they're like, oh, you're a social worker? Like, fuck you. You're like petite bourgeois. Like, you're not working class. Like, we're not organizing with you. Yeah, I've had people just like straight up say that. And I'm just like, all right, that's a big yikes for me, dog. But the point is, is like in my field, this is an active ongoing struggle of like workers who want to be quote unquote middle class who are aspirational, yet the conditions themselves never actually really have ever matched up with what it is to be middle class unless you go into private therapeutic practice. And that is what most people in my profession do. They get to that point as fast as possible. And in some ways I'm like, okay, I think I would probably say like, yeah, there's probably grounds to like, say you're probably more like middle class or like like petit bourgeois, but the, it's a contentious history in the field. You know, it's like an ongoing struggle and tension that changes based on the backdrop. So whenever I hear people deploy that term about like my profession, like the first thing I kind of think is like, well, yeah, I mean, like maybe for certain s- sections of it, but it, it obscures like a much more intense ongoing contradiction within the whole field itself, I guess. And I I see the tensions in this in organizing. Like, you know how many times I've talked to social workers and I'm like, hey, so you're dealing with this bullshit condition at your job. What about coming in talking with our organization and maybe talking about unionizing, like trying to build a radical like labor perspective. And I've had people just straight up be like, well, 
yeah, you know, but I'm gonna I'm gonna have my own private practice next year. So ah, fuck it. You know, I hear that a lot, and it's like, and it's a tension. You know, that I know I'm ranting a little bit, but I just I have something to say. So I feel like it's a it's a worthwhile rant. You know, as, as as go off, King. Um, as trying to answer this question, I was actually reading a lot of Nikos Polanzis' book on classes in capitalist society, and Polanzis has a really interesting idea talking about the PMC question. His conclusion was essentially that this particular class, more than any other, will hinge on ideological factors more than its material interests because it op- occupies that gray zone nether region. In some way, it's like it's even more susceptible to ideological propaganda sorts of uh, organizing approaches precisely because it's like weird and kind of ambiguous what role it occupies. So mm-hmm. like that's my experience of this question from, you know, from a fucking field that typically like some people would label it like a PMC field. Adam, I'm, I'm really glad that you continued to the end of your rant, and you you made that point because it's uh, what I was going to suggest is that part of the reason why this is so difficult a political question is because I don't think that we truly appreciate like what ideology is and how it works, so that we mistake the aspirations which are conditioned entirely by the the, the hegemony of the ideology of bourge- of the bourgeoisie. Uh, we mistake those for objective interests, mm-hmm. but we wouldn't do that. Or I mean, maybe some people would, but I don't think that um, we wouldn't do that. And we, I would counsel against doing that when it comes to any other misidentification of interests, like a white worker who has prejudice against non-white workers or some who maintains some chauvinistic idea of their you know, so-called ethnic interests over their class interests. We wouldn't say because this person does not have a like revolutionary class consciousness, they're not actually working class. The fact of the matter is that the aspiration is against their class interests. And I would say like that's true also of people who are currently, you know, what we would call working class who aspire to be small business owners. The fact that they have an aspiration to like basically transcend their class but take their profession with them doesn't in any way alter the material circumstances under which they actually exist. It only obscures those conditions to them, even though it is rooted in a recognition of the conditions themselves. But it's like the notion that you could you could climb out of your position. In a way, the, a really great starting point for recognizing that the position exists. So just to cut through it all, it's like I think we have to return to, objectively speaking, what is your relationship? Are you writing the paycheck or are you receiving the paycheck? What is the labor regime in, under which you exist? Because I think we can see how there have been you know, professions, like kinds of work that have been proletarianized, that have been dropped down rungs on the ladder over over time so that you can look at something that was once uh, like a personal craft that you owned, which is now something that gets cranked out in, and distributed broadly because it, the function that it serves for the facilitation of, I don't know, the circulation of capital is has grown. And so it might have changed. So I think we just we have to always go back to what what is like materially like objectively the actual conditions as opposed to the way in which we imagine to somehow escape them whether it's through grit or a lottery or or whatever we want to imagine God's will Alex I don't know did you want to jump in I was just kind of curious like kind of uh, what no, to make I, of all I this didn't particularly like have anything to add I, I guess at this point I just uh, yeah I definitely I, I really resonated with what you're saying there Jason about the pivot or the shift from being in the position of a proletarianized, you know, ideological proletarianized worker to someone who's like starting their own practice or 
you know, it happens in tons of different professions. I mean, like, you know, I work as a tutor and, you know, there, there are ways in which everyone's always trying to argue to me that, like, I should stop doing that and I should just, like, use the resources that I have for the current form of tutoring that I do to just like open my own tutoring business and just do private, like private sessions and make so much more money. And it would just be so much more of a way for you to like get ahead. And like, I don't know, I I just am like, but that would that change anything about a where I stand in relation to, you know, the labor force and, and B would I in any way be saving myself any trouble or in any way, you know, it's like I would have to do all the extra work that would earn me any of that extra money uh, and take it all upon myself. And I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's definitely an ideologically clouded thing to talk about. It's very difficult to get people to understand the, the difference between class and how you identify. In terms of what you were saying before, Adam, about the separation between your profession, reminded me of what Neil said about like when he asked the students, do you want to be a social warden or a social worker? And I guess like that sort of that that sort of separation you're talking about in terms of like, well, do I just want to manage the situation or do I want to become a part of the working class? And that's not exactly what I wanted to say, but I said it. <laughs> it that happens to me like 50% of the time. I'm like, I finished the thought and that wasn't what I was going to say, but I'll leave it there. And it's there now. It, it is what I did say. <laughs> You, you are responsible uh, retroactively. So, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. It's up to you. Well, uh, so I, I had a session with Neil the other day. He finished it on. I said something like, oh, yeah, I was telling this person about my dark side. And he was like, hmm, your dark side. I was like, oh, fuck. It's <laughs> over. And I'm like, oh, God, now I've got to sit with this for another fucking week. But yeah, the unconscious really took over. So, I mean, on the note of dark sides, <laughs> I'm wondering after like, talking through this a little bit, if in some way the deploying of a concept like PMC uncritically, in some way I think is an escape from despair. I mean, Jason, we were starting off by like talking about if you could tell your former self something, it would be, oh, you should despair more. And I wonder Mm -hmm. like how much are we all in terms of organizing and sort of questions like this, like you were saying, like, Hayden, like basically, oh, it's like, what is revolution? It is this, check mark. Um, what is class? It right. is this, check mark. I can't help but wonder if like these are all weird, unconscious like strategies of avoiding the sort of just yawning void that is underneath of us all the time that is, you know, the, the fucking trash heap of history that we're not in any way addressing or talking about and most of the organizing that I've ever done. And I just can't help like thinking of my own experience, uh, you know, in organizing work, just being like, you know, we can talk all day about, oh, like, why is it that everyone just always goes back and reads like state and revolution and that's it? Or like, why is it that we parrot these slogans, right? Like we take on the costume of the past. And I understand there's like a complex, quote unquote, dialectical relationship there of how we have to relate to the past. But most of the time, whenever I feel like I've encountered that, there is no complex dialectical relationship to the past. And I can't help but think these are all weird, unconscious strategies we have of not having to address the fact that no one knows what to do. We're all terrified and we need to despair like fully and recognize that. And I, I just feel like the shorthand use of these concepts for most of the left is a like a disavowal of that terror and that mm. despair that we just don't really want to recognize and deal with or we don't know how to. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, on, on that note, I think we should, uh, I want to give a nod to what or, or another nod to I guess the intentions of this categorization there's this identification of a, a tendency among a, a layer of people who are you know born into working class families but that have you know college educations you know have an aspiration 
to a, you know a kind of professional life that then uh, they find it being dashed against the rocks of like the reality of the economy, which no longer needs every single person with a college degree to be an administrator so that you might actually end up working a job that you had before you went to college. And uh, because of the ideological pull, the aspirations that come along with, you know, the expectations of the of the education, like what you were taught about going to college in the first place, it does seem to have a, a tangible, identifiable effect on people's politics as like basically raging against their reality, that they are in fact just workers with a degree. There's a certain level of disgust that exists among people who have more embraced their objective class reality, which is to say, have already gone through that despair <laughs> and to say like, these people, these, these PMC types are like trying to build a politics, gives them a place where they can stay a, in a layer above us. But it is, I think it's, it is a matter of just not having reckoned with the reality of working class life in this country, or actually I would say in other countries like the most developed, you know, capitalist economies. I think uh, it is a thing to push against as a set of politics, I just think it's different than identifying it as like an alien class element. Similarly to like, uh, you know, that when you're in a trade union, you know, you have a, an officer layer within your union, which uh, is answerable, at least supposedly, to the membership as a whole. Um, but often, because of the fact that they sit in an office and spend a lot of time in conversations with people of alien class and actually alien in the sense of being enemy class, right? The, the owners, they start to develop, you know, this similar identification with something that's not their objective class interests. But there's only like, I would like to think only a very small section of what we call the left that would actually identify a trade union official as an alien class element, sort of objectively, like just by virtue of existing in officialdom, you are actually more capitalist than than proletarian. Because if that's the case, then, I mean, we actually have to acknowledge that what we've constructed is a whole new kind of class, which is neither proletarian bourgeois or petty bourgeois, but it's actually something else entirely, which has, and I guess that's part of the argument, right? That this the professional managerial class has distinct interests, which is that it wants to be an administration. But classically speaking, part of our project is the willowing down of the barrier between mental and manual labor. Administration is a necessary aspect of complex organization whether it's social or, or economic or whatever. But uh, I think we envision a world in which administration still continues to exist, right? It's just the people who own it that the administrators administrate on behalf of that we want to get rid of. That reminds me of something that um, Mark Fisher said. For the left, it's not a question of, I think Zizek says it as well. It's not a question about getting rid of administration and bureaucracy, but it's about asking what do we want administrators and bureaucratic institutions to serve essentially? Because in a highly industrialized society you're not going to get away from having bureaucracy having managers and shit like that but it's more like Zizek says I don't want to fucking I don't want anything to do with how I get power I just want to be able to send a couple of emails and then you know I'm completely <laughs> right. happy with being alienated from a lot of processes in the society and you know and it's not the sort of dreamscape that Murray Butcham would want where we're all sitting down and talking about politics every every night and you know having to manage everything at grassroots level right we need alienating institutions but how do we want to be or what are they in service of I guess and at the moment it's obviously profit what do we do about that <laughs> well right it's like just because every cook can govern doesn't mean every cook must govern <laughs> we do I at least I would like to hold on to the republican notion of representation in leadership and administration and so on but I would like to rescue it from its deformations under the, a system in which 
no matter who you choose to represent you, they ultimately represent a different class interest. We have to reshuffle the deck in such a way that there is no private ownership class so that the people that we do choose to represent us at the level of administration, both of society and like civil society, but also like at work, are actually representative. It doesn't mean that every single one of us must take a turn as representative. We all should have the right to be like Zizek and just say, yeah, I vote for that guy, whatever. I want to go to work and go home. I think there's an element, too, of whenever we talk about wanting some really small modicum of alienation from these huge, complex processes in, in an increasingly complex and uh, overwhelming society that I think we have to also like be very critical of thinking about, well, whenever we're deploying the word alienation, like, are we thinking about this in a Marxist context? Because that's a very particular kind of alienation, very particularly around how work is constructed and how commodity production is structured. I mean, in some way, I wonder if there is a sort of a non-dialectical deploying of that term alienation, as if it isn't, again, we adopt this concept, we're trying to paper over a gap that is there, which is this way of saying the kind of alienation that like, let's say, for example, Jason is talking about, right? Like if, if you take at least some part of early Marx as being, you know, worthwhile to think about the idea that some element of our lives would allow us to do a lot of different things to develop our capacities in all sorts of different ways. So we're not locked into just doing one repetitive, dumb form of labor for 12 hours a day and just destroying every element of our personal time and turning us into just like, only being able to satisfy our like creature comforts, then on some level, what we're talking about in terms of like bureaucratic processes and administration, like are two different questions. Like it's a different question of saying like, well, we need to have some sort of administration to like make sure this shit gets done. And we don't want to have to have like endless democratic like meetings with like the people's mic, you know, like it's occupied to basically figure out where the power needs to go. Or what if like an actual, and I've had this conversation with people who are big Butchin fans or like ANCOMs or anarcho-syndicalists. It's like, what happens in a crisis? What do you think should happen if like there's some major natural disaster, some crisis? Like, how do you think you should organize around responding to that crisis in some sort of way? And I feel like they're just like different questions than this idea that the very particular kind of alienation everyone is subjected to, even capitalists themselves, if you read Marx properly and thoroughly, is that we're talking about the way that your whole conditions of your life get reduced down and, and like hammered down into doing one very specific thing over and over and over again for most of your fucking life. And it just seems to me that like whenever we're talking about the questions of bureaucracy and administration, I'm not saying there aren't challenges and like really serious questions. This is what people like Foucault are good to read for, like Deleuze. But it's just to say that I think those are two different questions to me. I just think we have to be careful about taking like the Marxist concept of alienation, just plastering that over any other potential social problem or challenge that we face as if they're like the same thing. The idea of alienation is a maybe a fruitful concept to start with. I mean, I, I understand like we shouldn't be just throwing that term around um, in ways that it doesn't necessarily apply. But I think that in terms of like alienation, just as a question in general of like, you know, the the workers not feeling connected to the products of their labor overall because of whatever, because of class stratification and their relationship to their to their work. Like, I mean, what, what about that administrative class that we're talking about? What are, you know, this group of people that's a little bit anomalous right now? Like what I guess this also t- ties into the bigger question that I that I had sort of following what Jason was saying earlier. Like, I, it's like, is that administrative class, this like sort of professional managerial class that we're talking about is is that space 
of like potential for pro- proletarianization available to be taken or is it so thoroughly poisoned with this sort of like ideological efficiency of management to like is, isn't it that when you hold that administrative position that your purpose or like your performance of your of your work in its in its ideal sense would be to like basically like smooth the gears of, of capital right like you're you're basically <laughs> acting as like a and I, I totally respect that that could be different right like that we could mm-hmm. think of it differently and we could reconceptualize it's like don't give unto the devil what isn't due you know you shouldn't just abandon the idea that it could ever be saved but at the same time i would imagine in today's conceptualization of that that class of people that like if they were to feel alienated from their products of their labor it would it would mean something like they were uh not relating to how they are contributing to um, the alienation of the workers that they manage, you know, or like that the products of their labor is actually like the more efficient pushing of like the workforce that's below them to like do what it does with less griping and, and with more efficiency. I don't know how you could even define it for a, a, a group like that. It just doesn't fit into the structure very well, I guess. Or maybe Adam, you have some words on that or Jason, someone. Yeah, fuck you. That's my words on that. No, um, <laughs> I, I just wanted to I wanted to clarify what nice. I mean by that. <laughs> nice. Well, no, le- well, fuck you. Yes. But to elaborate. <laughs> yes. Fuck you. First off. But let me clarify what I meant. In addition to the fuck you. No, I just whenever I say like capitalists themselves are alienated. Whenever I say that, I mean that there is a larger systemic logic at play that isn't reducible to like a particular group of people's conscious intentions about how they're existing in that system. It's the idea that there's a larger structural system and a larger process and a larger pattern of movement and motion and logic that's at play that even though like, yes, obviously like capitalists like are the top of the totem pole and are like brutally, ruthlessly exploiting everyone. It's just to recognize that part of the imperative to do that is not just like their own material interests. It's also that there's a particular logic at play that's a much larger structural thing. Yeah, so fuck you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what Alex said before, like, so the reason why, or the, the way I was confronted with this sort of problem, I guess, in leftist organizing is I posted on our sort of social media comms. Facebook that's how most, most problems in leftist organizing begin. Yeah, well, I posted. Well, well, <laughs> that was your well, problem yeah, right I mean, there. You how, got on the internet. really get going. So like, in one of the discords we we're talking about and it's a, a common theme i think with um dialectical pessimism is the sort of not retreat but the sort of the prominence of like eastern thoughts on meditation and shit like that so essentially i posted something that was from the discord into my social media things like here's a thing that we should talk about like middle class people or whatever phase or response to our conditions being paved over by eating a raisin with mindfulness you know like think through the raisin <laughs> chew through the raisin oh my and, fuck, and- dude i swear god man like uh adam put me onto some stuff the other day and i still am angry with you for this adam he had me listen to uh, i don't even want to say his fucking name i hate this man so much he who Sam shall Harris not be podcast. named the he who, who, who shall not be named it this motherfucker he just has like this whole podcast about mindfulness now and he was talking about the the protests that are happening and he was talking about um, it was just disgusting, but he he has like taken his particular brand of racist, uh, like support of like these like terrible ideological deployments against the left, and he just like turns it into like this weird ASMR, like let me talk to you about facts and like you know it just just I'm sorry you just just I got triggered just now I'm sorry just please continue don't pay attention to me 
so I, hate, I never I do like that way that like the managerial class implements mindfulness like i just use mindfulness to like be able to oppress you better you know because at the end of the day it makes you know it's like that silicon valley mindset of like no, I'll do peyote on the weekend and then I'll come back with like brand new ideas of like how to make you guys work harder for me, <laughs> you know, like. Well, that turns out to be the actual social function of the happiness industry, isn't it? Of the whole mindfulness paradigm is exactly that. Whether we, it's we, to make you good at oppressing or make you better at being oppressed. Yep, claps a lot. I'm curious, you posted that about the mindfulness stuff as being a palliative for the brutality of the larger capitalist order that we're a part of. So what was what was the response? Were, were your comrades not down to, to hear the critique or were, was it a favorable response? What happened? They weren't down. And I th- well, the, the response was fucking bizarre because the guy who first responded, he was like, you know, this seems like an article that is only really focusing on liberal middle class people, you know, who have to sort of exist in these in these large sort of corporate or public institutions. I don't really think we should be focusing on their mental health needs or what these types of attitudes towards spirituality, what they're doing to the middle class or people in these institutions they were just like no 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 like some mental health is a big problem on the left you know and i find meditation helps me and i was like yeah that's fine that's fine that's great that wasn't the fucking point the point is that like there's a group of people out here that are maybe could be proletarianized sort of ideologically or spiritually or whatever and these are methods of dealing with alienation that are employed in these institutions that we need to have a very poignant understanding of why that is um, making its way into these corporate worlds. Not to shit on anyone who does meditation or anything, but we need to know, you know, why is it now becoming so popular? I felt it really weird that the person was like, no, 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 mental health is a big problem on the left right now. So we need to be focusing on on ways in which to help that mental health crisis on the left. I was like, what do you mean by the left? And I, I feel like they were triggered because it was talking about meditation. They find value in meditation, which is fine. But for me, it was more like, no, no, no. Like, listen, when I'm in a meeting at work and we start the session off by like, you know, how are you feeling today, guys? And like this weird sort of like corporate group meditation session. I was just, like, it's it's wildly alienating and yeah i don't know it's coercive it's coercive yeah yeah yeah, you you can't not participate you can't and you feel like a fucking idiot when you do you know what i mean like you 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 feel like you feel when it's being employed on you and you're like oh fuck are you joking everyone it's like that thing with um jizik how he says about ideology is you don't have to believe in it in order to you know perform it anyway and i feel like that's sort of what's happening in that sort of circumstance and so I just wanted to, that, that was like the, the biggest confrontation I had with, with someone maybe rejecting people who are white collar workers and not thinking about their life world and how meditation and all that sort of shit is infecting their life world and why it's there in the first place. No, 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 we need to focus on the mental health of the left. I was like, that just seems stupid and fuck you. Yeah, look, I, I think that mental health is a problem on the left, but it's a problem in the sense that like it's a thing that people want to take up as some kind of like broad category with like universalist responses. And since the only universal response is to uh, abolish the conditions, what we have left to work with, since we haven't done that yet, is to prescribe things to people um, in this very, uh, well, useless kind of way. Like, I was very pleased to find just very within the last few days that the uh, the late Michael Brooks and I have a similar position on like meditative practice, which is that it's deeply personal 
and conditioned by a person's life experience and like their what about the way they were enculturated and brought up that like what speaks to them in whatever particular way and it's also super useful and maybe even necessary but not in a way that can be prescribed like all right everyone we're going to do this now it's a thing that like is worth exploring if only as a palliative because you have to continue to exist but i don't think that that is a project of the left other than to just encourage the development both of the individual and the collective at the same time so that there's like a a collective approach to trying to change the world which is to abolish the conditions and maybe even build institutions that feel good to be a part of so that joining a socialist group doesn't feel like going to a, a fucking meeting at work or church unless you really like church but then also encouraging people to find those the things that they must do for themselves like less you know whatever we can call it self-care i don't care what we call it but to try to conflate the two i think is where we get the where we have a problem i just want to jump onto that really fast this is actually uh, directly in line with the discussion we've been having on the discords as well which is this question about the individual and the collective and how maybe in a lot of ways the things that we're we're grappling with or maybe because of the larger structural conditions we've been on our heels our entire lives and so in the absence of that you have to both survive and try to preserve some sense of psychic stability in all of this and then also i think the larger structural conditions behind us are pushing you to say every collective problem is inherently like a personal problem that has to be solved first and, and I think that that's, that's the big question for me regarding like DP stuff is, you know, we had this discussion about if like dialectical pessimism is trying to speak to the sheer just like psychic devastation and like mental wasteland that we're being subjected to or like we're being constantly pushed into because of these larger conditions is the answer like some kind of like group therapy. Like I'm a fucking licensed therapist. No. I do not want to be doing group therapy with anyone that I'm organizing with. Like those are two distinct <laughs> things. Now that right. being said, do I think probably therapy is a necessity for everyone to some degree? Yes, absolutely. I think any attempt or any like approach that conflates an individual's like need for like therapy or like being part of a group therapeutic sort of experience, which I I do both of those, like I do them for people and I receive them myself. But the idea that those should just immediately be transferred into the political space and how to collectively overthrow the structural conditions, I just, in my own experience as an organizer and as a therapist, I just, I think they have things to say to each other. I just don't think, I think to conflate them or think that one solves the problem of the other, to me, I think is, is kind of dooming us to the same exact shit that happened in the 60s and the 70s whenever politics became this sort of like individualized therapeutic approach and i think we've seen the results of that mm. it led to the fucking mm. yuppies and people just still being able to you know retreat or like silently turn around and retreat from the material struggles at hand and i mean they were defeated also to me that's part of like dp thought is have to be like no they were they were defeated brutally and ruthlessly but the people who survived that i think pretty consciously like or you know maybe not totally consciously turned around and decided to focus on these sort of like individualistic practices of like palliative care versus staying committed to that collective organization. Or if they did, they mostly wound up in sects that were increasingly whittled down and became increasingly paranoid and vulnerable to infiltration and destruction by the state. So basically what I'm hearing about being a dialectical pessimist and organ- organizing is just being the most sad boy possible in the group. Hold on. Let, let, so let me respond. <laughs> let me respond. <laughs> On the surface, Kamar claps a lot. Uh, On the surface, perhaps. All right, my comrade over here in the bottom right corner. So let me ask you. I mean, I know we're both sad boys a little bit, but like, do you feel like whenever we're like 
organizing stuff, do you feel like we're the two most sad boys in the room? I'm assuming you're talking to me. Yeah, that uh, is you. Like, yeah, you're bottom you're right on my boy. screen. Yeah. I have people okay. organizing a line up and down. Yeah, mine too. So, <laughs> and naturally, like I'm at the top. Um, but uh, <laughs> saddest boy. <laughs> like I don't think in, that we were particularly the most sad boy, right? Like I think we maybe internally to ourselves have the most sad boy attitudes. <laughs> but like, but I don't think that that's like the way that we come off, or, or like in the organizing circles. At least I participated in with you. I think I think that it's that's absolutely the wrong way to characterize it. In fact, I think it's almost like um, that's when you do the real work you know it's like all of the the chumming around and the fun and stuff just sort of like gets cut and all of a sudden it's like now we're going to talk about some serious shit i think that both you and i adam like we love to like joke around and have fun but i think that when it really comes down to stuff like that we we just become very serious and we become very like ice cold kind of and uh thank you, you know? ice cold motherfucker <laughs> like, is what it is it's not playing. sad boy it's ice cold motherfucker but that's what it is <laughs> no. for me just relax guys fucking hell <laughs> i mean it's funny as you say that because like i feel like you guys are like you know certainly um prone to joking about and shit like that and like that's the the funny thing is when i'm in organizing i feel like when we're sort of together in a group i'm the joker i'm the one to sort of running around being a bit of a dickhead but as soon as it sort of snaps then it's time to be serious and i'm the i'm the most pessimistic about our chances for history but everyone else who's seems on the surface to be super super sad boys or super sad humans are the ones who what's going on right now so that's the funny sort of dichotomy is like i am a dialectical pessimist i'm not a cynic you know yeah i would say that like to try to extrapolate this into something that's like a general organizing principle it's a uh, it's more about like what flows from the thinking as it relates to the organizing rather than just like lay it over the top so like there's like a co- sort of a happiness industry socialism that seems to predominate right now which is like when we fight we win like i believe that we will win <laughs> communism is guaranteed like everything now that we're here hundred thousand members by the end of the year every single campaign is the turning point it's not to, you know we don't want to see any of those things not happen right but the the idea is because i think that perhaps none of those things are true compels me to try to help identify other benchmarks for success beyond the total victory of a terribly organized class with very thinly developed politics in what purports to be its leadership in the form of the socialist movement uh, against the most powerful machinery of you know violence and oppression that has ever existed i would just think like because of my whatever my pessimism i think rather than just like you know hashtag do the work until completion we should say, this is our assessment of the conditions under which we're organizing in this city at this given moment. This is how it fits into a general plan for the region or the, the country or whatever you want, whatever your parameters are. How do we achieve this benchmark? How do we achieve this goal? And how does that work as a springboard to the broader goal? Which is to say that it's not probably ever useful to go into, <laughs> I hate saying organizing spaces, but uh, <laughs> you know, the movement and and the calling card is ah it's probably not going to work y'all but it's actually instead to discourage the it's gonna work mentality by um trying to identify ways in which it could work uh, that are something less than absolute victory or absolute defeat because it seems um i think we all might agree on this that like the we're definitely going to win mentality tends to produce people who ultimately conclude that we're definitely not going to win i absolutely would agree with that i I just want to add a couple of things as well regarding like happiness industry socialism yeah i think one of the other trends (laughs) that i've seen that's that's really uh very strong in a lot of organizing communities and and comrades that i you know love dearly is a lot of the work around adrian Marie brown's books on emergence strategy and pleasure activism. And I really love the sentiment. It's this idea that your 
organizing work should, as an effort to counteract this like hyper burnout, like activist culture bullshit, should like be something that is a thing that you find great pleasure and like enjoyment and and joy in doing. And I really love that sentiment. I the thing that alarms me, (laughs) like I'm pretty critical of about her works. As, as much as I like the idea and I think it's a necessary one, it's a vital one, is I think it gets too trapped in like not really being clear about what this really means or or the idea that it can be like too trapped in the nonprofit industrial complex because Adrienne Marie Brown is a, she's a nonprofit ED, you know? And it almost feels like it's too close to the sort of like corporate greasing the wheels, like kind of mindfulness kind of stuff. But I think that it's a, it's speaking to a real need that people have. You know, for me in terms of kind of like what Jason was saying, I mean, Yeah, I think that, you know, the whole thing about being dialectical in your pessimism and not just pessimistic is that I think you have to understand the comrades that you're with in the room that you're in. Sometimes like you do have to be the person that's like, listen, this is going to fail. And I know that it's going to fail because, and I'm doing, I'm going to invoke a really important phrase here because we're operating on a concrete analysis of concrete conditions. If you look at these things, honestly, you will see that what we're up against It is a slim chance in hell this is going to work at all, if not horribly backfire. And you have to know when to say that. I have been part of too many organizing efforts that did not recognize that. And then lo and behold, they all horribly failed or backfired. And then I think you did see exactly what Jason is talking about. People who are like, yes, this is going to succeed. We're going to like catalyze the new revolution. And then whenever it didn't happen, they retreated and they left and they became deeply cynical. I think that more often than not, you're probably going to have to do that in a lot of your organizing, especially if you're going into kind of more standard groups that exist. But I've said this in the Discord, and I'm going to say it here too. I think the best embodiment of the dialectical pessimist like perspective on things is this amazing Tommy Shelby meme from Peaky Blinders, where basically the first frame, it's two frames of him talking, and the first frame is he says, well, what if we fucking die? And then the second frame is he just kind of looks up, and he's got this like cheeky little grin, and he says, well, what if we fucking live? And to me, that is like the most dialectical pessimist sort of idea because to recognize the real threat and the real structural imbalances of power that everyone who calls themselves anything on the left, regardless of what that is, has to recognize that like, yeah, if you're going to go up against like this behemoth that is like the capitalist world world order, that question of like, well, what if we fucking die? I mean, Fred Hampton answered that question for himself and he did die. He was murdered for it. And so I think you have to be able to do that first panel and maybe do that for your comrades. But then the, again, the dialectical pieces to say, okay, recognizing all of that. Yeah. What if we live? And to me, you know, it's kind of a stupid meme, but it really captures something I think really important. And and it, to me, it sort of depends on which part of the dialectic do you need to to activate and go mobile with, depending on the situation that you're in. <laughs> right. Well, and a recognition of the possibility, right, of abject failure. Yeah. Should, if we're being very clear-headed, which is hard to do, but this should condition how we make plans, right? If you don't believe we can fail then just run headfirst into the meat grinder because you're going to win, right? But if you think you might fail, maybe there are certain things we won't do yet. And so then you have to start thinking in terms of strategy. Like this is to try to connect to an earlier thread just because I feel like it was brought up. And even if it wasn't, I'm going to pretend it was. <laughs> but I think it was brought up that you know there's this, I, the possibility of certain sections of uh, the society being too far gone because of this, the supposed ideological wages that can be won by virtue of identifying against their class interests. The way in which you start sort of start to think in terms of strategy is like, what will it take for us to have as a proletarian movement, the necessary hegemony that comes from having won things 
to bring along the people who have objective interests like you know with us that they don't see because of the power of primary hegemony of the capitalist class and these don't sound like they're related necessarily right like the recognition of the possibility of losing and then grandiose ambitions like winning over to the struggle people who have like consciously decided they don't agree with you but i think the only way that you can get to a point of thinking strategically is to start thinking in terms of like how to survive to the next battle so i've been like watching a lot of civil war stuff lately and it's like we've been through enough bull runs, right? Where we think we're going to win, if we just charge head first and they kick the shit out of us. So it's like, all right, let's start thinking in terms of what's a victory that will give us a base from which to develop the capacity to actually defeat the enemy. That's the way in which I think hope springs eternal, but not in a fixed way, just because we want it to, but because we're, you know, whatever. That metaphor got away from me really fast. I think I was, <laughs> I think I was making the point better before I tried to sum it up beautifully. <laughs> I, I agree with all of you, what you guys are saying. I really like that, um, Jason, the way you're putting it. And like also like Adam, the, the concrete analysis of concrete conditions kind of thing really resonates with me. And I'm just, it reminds me of like, it's actually a discussion of violence, like in Zizek when he talks about violence and the sort of way that people conceive of violence just being like basically never justifiable, right? But sometimes needs to be resorted to, to like accomplish whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he kind of gives this this explanation of why we need to sort of like reverse that that maximum that that basically for for the oppressed classes like right like violence should always be legitimate just based on the fact that they are the ones who are having the violence done to them generally speaking and like then have the 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 necessary part just just be saying that it should never be necessary and so it forces the working class to basically conceive of violence as something that has to be strategized about and it, it imbues that type of engagement with like an enormous amount of responsibility on the part of, of the people uh, perpetrating that kind of violence. And so, you know, and of course he talks about violence in all different kinds of ways, not necessarily just like um, arm struggle, but it, but it is also arm struggle. Uh, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but like, I, I think that it, it goes hand in hand with what we're talking about in terms of attitude. Like when you come together with other people and you want to organize, you just even in the workplace about what you as workers need, from your, you know, employers or, you know, your bosses, that attitude has to be there. It can't, it can't be one of just pessimism for the sake of like defeatism or, or because you just feel right. like we've always lost, right? It has to be something that in recognition of loss has the aim or the goal of like, yeah, creating that space of inspiration, creating that uh, grip with which to like continue fighting. And yeah, with like a sobering or like a sober uh, acknowledgement of the, the way that this is has failed and will continue to fail into the foreseeable future if we're being if we're taking seriously what the project is that's in front of us you know what i mean and you know that shouldn't be also discouraging it's like the, literally having the courage to see this hopelessness right like another zizek maxim right like having the courage to see this hopelessness and working with that courage as opposed to trying to vibe and make everybody feel good and like you know check in with everybody's emotions and stuff like yeah do that but like not to try to paint over the like realities of a struggle and to like kind of kind of have like a sort of like a drunken positivity about how it's all going to turn out in the end i guess i guess something that's sort of difficult then to sort of grapple with is like if you don't want this socialist happiness industry like sort of in your organizational uh, whatever how do you then yeah, create spaces where it's not mimicking your life in capitalist society like so how do you make spaces outside of it or whatever maybe not outside of it but places where you can go to feel less alienated and connected but then at the same time that not becoming the means in and of itself like like that's the sort of problem i guess i'm having with 
understanding how to like create those spaces where you can where it feels different but then making that not the end i think this is a really crucial question and it's something that i think i'm probably like most critical about the democratic socialists of america about this at least the the sort of stuff that i've seen is more often than not whenever i i'm like i've been to dsa events and meetings and stuff i just can't help but be like this is just a place to like hang out and have friends with people and you know and you do like a little bit of organizing work maybe you campaign for bernie it's like but this is very obviously about like just having a friend group and i guess like for me it's kind of like you know i totally get that like yeah if like politics is a really important thing for you and like leftist politics and how you i quote unquote identify like you adopt that as like an identity that you're going to use to create a sense of stability in your life or or like seems to match your values then yeah like you're going to want to associate with people who like share that but the thing that i always see is that it doesn't like move through that it gets stuck in that sort of idea of like this is really about the people that i'm hanging out with and i think it's no wonder that like either you're very easily co-opted by the Democratic Party and the history of the DSA. I, most people in the DSA that I know have no idea of like the history of Michael Harrington and like their relation to the Democratic Party and like how it was formed and all this other stuff. But then that idea of like it's impossible to like move through that because it gets stuck in that sort of, I don't know, maybe the answer isn't, well, we just all have to have the same shared line that's like clearly defined, right? Because I've also been involved in Maoist groups and like that's what the fucking Maoists do and that doesn't seem like the way to go either. In terms of like what makes it different. I think what I've seen is that in a lot of these groups, there is a focus, like whenever you do that stuff of like, all right, let, let's check in, how's everyone doing? Like, let's kind of build those personal connections. It stays very personal without also grappling with the fact that like, you know, the political is personal. It's not just the personal is political. It's the other way around too. For example, you know, we've talked a lot about left-wing melancholia, right? How do you actually create a, an organization or, or a way to structure a group that isn't just like, yeah, we know everyone has like personal fucking shit that's like related to the larger structural conditions but how do you then actually recognize and acknowledge and maybe even mourn collectively the larger things that were lost or defeated or vanquished i don't know how you do this i don't think it's like the same thing as like going to group therapy with your like communist group on sunday nights i don't think it's the same thing but there has to be a way that there's a sort of shared recognition and a shared like ability to express like the sheer terror and hopelessness of what all the, of that means. And I don't think it's the same as like a group therapy session. I'm, I'm wanting to be really, really adamant about that because in the end, it's like, it isn't about your own personal shit. Like it's about our shit, you know, it's like not, not your shit comrade, but our shit, you know, I think that's our shit, our shit. <laughs> not me, not me, us. Yeah. You know, it's uh, the difference between like your particular response, universal material conditions. Like it's not necessarily about the way, you know, cultivating the way you particularly are alienated, but how those, all those, condi- that same produces different uh, or particular responses to the same set of conditions but not cultivating those particular responses yeah i think that's kind of the idea right it's like you're sort of consciously subsuming your own personal responses and needs to some larger sort of collective like ability to respond to that together i guess i and to be clear i don't think there's a good answer of how to do that yet but i think it seems like something we all sorely need because it seems like that's one of the things that comes up as a theme in our discussions around this is like how do you get out of left-wing melancholy and it's like well if we read our freud it's like there has to be left-wing mourning instead and like what's the difference right and and you have to understand for at least for freud like what are the individual psychic responses that distinguish one from the other you know this is a oversimplification but the idea is is like in melancholia you have 
libidinally invested your own sense of self in the object that was lost. And so now you're mourning not the object, but you're mourning the loss of yourself in the object. And mourning is where you do have a period of outwardly, you know, like grieving and terror and rage and sadness. And yet it creates the possibility to libidinally invest in a new object. And and to me, it's like, I think there's a, a huge importance to say, yeah, like whenever we get stuck in that like feeling of sadness and terror and loss, like, yeah, like that's important. But there has to be a way of saying, okay, well, like once you realize how you have invested your own sense of self libidinally and like the revolution or like, you know, the Bolshevik party or like whatever it is, or like Gonzalo in Peru, if you're a bunch of fucking frothing at the mouth malice, what happens whenever you like recognize that like you're really mourning who you are and the idea that you've lost that? Because that's the whole idea, right? Like left-wing melancholia appears as if it's like a larger collective political thing, but it is inherently a deeply narcissistic thing that you're doing. It's a narcissistic response. And so whatever mourning is has to not be narcissistic and so, or like, you know, have like a healthy amount of narcissism. <laughs> because then you have to invest in a new object and that's like to me what i'm really interested in it's like how do you help people recognize what's what they're really feeling melancholic about precisely so you can create the space for the new object that you can invest in one of my comrades was telling me about how like they've known people who have killed themselves because they didn't think the revolution was going to happen in their lifetime which like I, I thought like i was like fuck that's fucking heavy because like admittedly there's times where i'm driving at work i'm like man we're pretty fucked. i'm just going to pull into this next car and just die like it like like it feels like that's kind of like maybe directly the question like how do you stop people from thinking like the revolution isn't going to happen in your lifetime so i guess die like it's such a morbid response i can imagine that you guys may have encountered that in the states as well but i just i was like fuck yeah i mean yeah fair enough i mean that's a big question (laughs) i don't know the answer exactly i think that a, a critical component of all of this is probably at least on a on a personal level like something that we can just immediately practically apply in whatever left we're in is to you know like let's say you're if you come from a part of the left that i think is familiar to all of us you do a lot of study groups about historical experiences or whatever and i think that there's a space that's almost never taken up which is just like how did we fail here it's just like this is an inspiring story of a great revolutionary moment paris commune may 68 whatever it might be how did we fail here is never a question that's like in the uh study guide uh, because it's, it's a bummer, right? But like, how do we fail here is another way of saying, how might we succeed next time? And I think just this, the proliferation of that sort of question is, a, is just one really simple but necessary component of, I don't know, broadening and popularizing what right now is a fairly ethereal notion shared among a very small group of people that we're calling dialectical pessimism. We can make a popular version of it by just introducing, again, like this concept of of failing because then it you know let's say maybe i'm drawing jumping to some big conclusions here but like we might not live to see the revolution in our lifetime which is a thing that you know like lenin had very famously said in 1916 that he's probably not going to live to see it and he was real bummed about it right the answer to that is not to say well look lenin didn't think it was going to happen and it happened the next year because the implication there is like maybe it'll happen next year the important point is is more like having embraced the existence of failure as a as a critical part of our lineage how do we learn how to study and assess and make better plans so that that next year could become a possibility rather than just it is a possibility de facto right because all history is is the aggregate of like conscious human action 
history doesn't just move forward like in because it wants to. We we do things, so it actually matters whether or not we uh, try to do better, and we can only do that by like learning what we did wrong. Then also. I don't know I don't know if it's going to complicate things more, but I don't know if yeah. Todd said he came up with this or he heard someone else sort of talk about it, how like the left would rather come up with a really good critique of why something failed than actually succeed. And <laughs> I, I sort of wonder, like, because it's something I've talked about with some comrades, one particular. What up, Jesse? It's the kind of the difference between like, do we unconsciously want a revolution at the same time? So it's like, it's not like because the comrades said about the people who have killed themselves because revolution isn't going to come like, you know, they authentically wanted a revolution to come. But then me and this other comrade were questioning us. It's not the fact that they consciously wanted the revolution, but like, what about the unconscious drives of like us undermining our own organizing efforts because we don't want the responsibility of history. We don't want to. Mm. No, sort of grasp the material conditions and like push through it's more of a case like we'd rather just sit and complain about how we fail all the time and that's that can be narcissistic in itself at the same time you know so it's, it's, it's a difference between like talking about that and analyzing the failures but then yeah wanting to push through and say like well how do we learn from those failures that's always the, the difficult part i'd rather just sit and moan about how we failed all the time for for someone like me <laughs> because I'm no stranger to those feelings, right? Of like uh, that, like suicidal thing that happens. I mean, it's it's definitely it's a thing that we all struggle with. We all know people who struggle with it, and like I think that in terms of like what helped me personally about it, it, it was literally like just keep planning stuff, like keep keep planning things that you have to do because, you know, <laughs> I mean, this is maybe just as me also, but like you know, if if you're gonna go out like that. You want it to appear a certain way. There's always like this certain kind of aspect of it that it it, ha- it matters what you get done before you do that thing, you know? And I think for me, it was like, just make sure that you finalize all of this stuff before you even revisit this idea. And like, if you're able to continue <laughs> proposing things that need to get done before you do that thing, um, you might just find some traction and like some way of re-engaging with your own life in a, in a productive way that keeps you constantly pushing it off. You know what I mean? And, and constantly pushing it back because you just haven't quite finished all that stuff you needed to get done before that thing needed to happen. So I don't know. I That's just my thoughts because like that helped me. But yeah, maybe not. I'm really glad we're talking about this. And I think it's important that we address the gravity and the seriousness of, of what it means to talk about like revolution and how much you can be invested in this and how there can be conscious and unconscious elements at play. You know, I'm thinking about people I've encountered in my own organizing work and, and that I've done this myself at times. You can be very, very self-destructive and not even be aware of why you're being self-destructive or what's really going on. Whenever I think about like, okay, practically, like how do you respond to this? Or like, what is it that, you know, like dialectical pessimism seems to be offering that could be a little different as as under theorizing and as ethereal as it is at this point. I mean, I think one, like whenever people talk about, oh, the revolution isn't going to come in my lifetime. Yeah, I've had this conversation with people who have literally said the thing that Jason said of like, oh, yeah, well, you know, Lenin said this in 1916. And then look what happened in the next year. And that is absolutely how it gets deployed. It's deployed as a way to say like, oh, well, let's just keep doing what we're doing. Let It's an excuse to not change anything. And that's what I've seen that I think is really destructive. I would offer two things as a corrective to this. And I'm not saying that like someone being so invested in quote unquote the revolution that if it they feel it's not going to happen, the, the most you know, logical solution is to like end their life about it. I guess two very simple things that could be built into organizing is one, whenever 
you talk about the revolution. I almost wonder if whenever people, the people I know that I've organized with, whenever they say that, they automatically assume that it succeeded. And like that is the thing that I think has to be addressed immediately is to be like, oh, I'm not sure it succeeded in the way that you think that it did. In my experience, most of the time, it's a really, really simplistic misunderstanding of what actually happened in the history. A little bit earlier on the Regrettable Centuries Discord, I was sharing with uh, Kevin, RIP Kevin, what up? Um, So a book by T.H. Rigby about Sovnarkom, about the actual very brutal boring, concrete ways that the state was reorganized after the Bolshevik Revolution. And, you know, I read that book and it was kind of fucked me up pretty hard because I'm like, so now that I actually am trying to study, like, what did they do after the glorious revolution happened? I'm like, it was kind of like not anything like I thought it was. And it was actually, there was much more continuity with the czarist regime to the early Bolshevik state than like anyone I ever knew had ever talked about, let alone even like asked a question about, like, how did they organize things afterward? And And so for me, one of the things that was really helpful was to, it stopped me like saying the revolution as if we're trying to replicate something that was successful in this way that we all just assume. I mean, I think more often than not, it's just like, well, if there was, if the revolution was really successful, then why are we still dealing with all this bullshit still? There had to be a failure there that is not acknowledged. And whenever we don't acknowledge that failure, we become even more susceptible to the sheer terror and despair of the idea that it won't happen again. And I think that has to be fucking just like ripped out at the root, like immediately to prevent people having this whole organizing of their sense of self around the idea of the revolution. Because if that is what your whole sense of your world and like your whole sense of meaning and purpose is organized, then what happens whenever you're inevitably fated to be disillusioned by it, especially coming in contact with the dialectical pessimist, right? It's going to fucking rock your world because it's going to cut through all the fantasy that you have of what the revolution really is. So I think that has to be something that is like addressed immediately out of the gate. But then the other thing though, that makes it not just the narcissistic, like getting stuck in like the defeats of the past is precisely looking for the lost futures. You don't study the past and the failures to get lost in them and just like to wail over the failures and how like you're never going to see that again or like nothing will ever succeed. You're studying the past to find out that the current moment and the future is always impregnated with history. And that is why you study the past. And so I think that it's, it's like a methodology question. And, it, and it's a question about when you engage with these things, here is the way to do it. Or here is an approach to do it that is very different than how anyone I know encounters it. I mean, I think one of the things I, I honestly, I'm like super proud about and like really humbled that we get a chance to do this in some small way is that, you know, like we study Yugoslavia, right? And we're like, we realized that like a lot of us didn't know any of this stuff. And the whole point of yeah. studying it was to say, this is a real question about what happens when you try to go through a period of transition? What were the things that seemed to be really amazing and really beautiful and were a real potential future and what things were lost? You know, I studied that and I didn't have despair. I'm like, wow, there were some really valuable lessons in there. And there are things that still haunt us. That future still haunts us and is like a living, breathing thing. You know, like the past is for me is both a a pile of wreckage and it's also like a living, breathing entity that's like a haunting, I guess. I find that to be an incredibly hopeful thing. Like I, I study that shit and I don't come away with despair. I come away with like a sense of obligation to those lost futures. So, I mean, for what it's worth, those are like two things I feel like for me have been a real personal thing to prevent the like self-destructive despair kicking in because it very easily could. 
Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, the, and like another thing in terms of like in socialist organizing, uh, I think it's something that this weird sort of thing of like, yeah, yeah, okay, we want the revolution, we're all socialists, this, that, and the third. But then you start asking questions like, how, like, how do you think society might look like? You know, after it, what are, what do our social relations like? How do you think they might be? You know, like. Do you like going to the pub? Great. I want pubs to exist after the revolution. How do we do a pub outside of capitalism? Like, how do we, you know, I was sort of thinking like, like you can run it like a co-op, like have people, if it's your local pub, you're always going to go there. So you have people sort of sign up to have, take responsibility of like the operations of it, but not necessarily be sort of dedicated to constant turnover or something, you know, but like just trying to encourage, like, what would you want your life to look like? Not in this world. Yeah, I think that there is something actually very practical and useful about as you sort of drift through the landscape of the actually existing world to like imagine your relationship to it in in altered conditions. You know, like what's a liberated version of this thing? And if we can't imagine mm-hmm. it, is that a is that a lack of imagination or is it a lack of possibility? Dunkin' Donuts probably won't exist after the revolution. We could conceive of a version of like a collectivized Dunkin' Donuts, but like why? You know, that's just me though. We could actually argue that out and it it actually might reveal quite a bit about the political imaginary uh, under which we're all operating. And maybe they're more dissimilar than we think. I, I certainly wouldn't say like that's the basis of like a political tendency, but it is like the kind of political exercise that we ought to be doing much more often. Because when you, like just right now, whenever you said, how would you do a pub? Let's call it year one of the revolution. My argument and this is coming from, this is trying to connect back to the the whole debate about the what is the middle class and who's in it and what, what are its you know constitutive elements and, and what are the relations to the primary contradiction in the world of labor and, and, and capital. I would say like, what if they were just like pubs still? What if the very first thing we did was not immediately collectivize literally everything? What if like, you know, to use Marx's uh, term, like what if the motor production which prevails doesn't necessarily completely dominate immediately? Like, what if we don't actually have to imagine that? I think there's a reason why, like, the, the people who hail from the Trotskyist tradition get so hung up on the idea of a transitional program, because there's something there's something basically right, I think, about conceiving of the construction of society as process, so that like, it's probably more useful to us to imagine what to do with the arms industry and telecommunications and you know those sorts of things than it is for us to decide what to do with like a bicycle repair shop. Maybe in the new constitution of the New Zealand Workers Federation of Soviet Republics or whatever it ends up being called. Like, yeah, you still have a right to own the pub. It's okay for now. Like maybe one day it will actually become a social necessity to like fully collectivize literally everything. But there are still things that operate outside of like strictly capitalist, the capitalist mode of production in terms of its internal mechanisms, even though that's subservient to it because that's what prevails. But there's still like non-capitalist sections of the world economy. Uh, I, I think that that's a debate that can be had that is, you know, that's not really the point I wanted to make. <laughs> but it's just to say that like uh, by, ver- by by putting ourselves through these thought experiments, it actually does, I think it reveals quite a little bit about what we actually think is possible and actually think is necessary. And I think it actually helps us conceive of the horizons as something other than an abstraction and other than a romanticized notion of previous horizons. That's all I really mean to say, I guess. I'll just say really quickly, hearing you talk about that, I can't help but think about the romantic idea of the imagination versus instrumental reason that we were talking about with the McCary here. It's an idea of like mm. a like a use of our reasoning, like rational capacities imbued or sort of um, in this kind of creative tension with the material conditions that we're in. And, you know, there's a reason why... I think like Ernst Bloch said this in The Principle of Hope in volume one, he said that 
in some ways, like we need the most radical utopian imagination possible just to see five feet in front of our faces in the current conditions. And to me, like, you know, I think that whenever people buck against us talking about like utopian horizons or whatever, it's always like you're inherently talking about a sort of like authoritarian, like top down complete like reorganization of all of society or you know that you would know exactly what the future is going to look like and that inherently is like flawed and and, you know and again drawing on like some of Marx's criticisms of the utopian socialists like again completely divorced from what he was actually talking about and criticizing but to me it's like we're not talking about that we already know who's going to be part of the revolution and who's not like that. We already know exactly what it's going to look like. To me, it's like, it's exactly what Bloch said. It's like, listen, I'm just trying to use a sense of like creative use of like my imagination or like logical, rational capabilities to be able to see things that could be different five feet in front of my face, you know? And maybe that's like, the importance of talking about the transition or whatever. But I mean, think about this, right? This is something that Zizek said in the US, just to talk about universal healthcare is literally like one of the most radical contentious things that anyone could talk about. You know, so it it also depends on the context too of like, what is utopian? I think I wrote this down actually in a conversation with someone recently. It's the idea of like most people in the US like working five hours a day, like only having a 25 hour work week, having universal healthcare, having like a decent social safety net. These are the most radical fucking things you can imagine right now in this country. People will go to literal class war to prevent these things from happening. So maybe it's like just that in itself is already like a utopian vision. Like, are we going to medicine, even just imagining those things and like broad abstract terms. From the experience of living in a country with something like universal healthcare, even the people who are like most right wing don't even touch it in conversation. It's like mm-hmm. they don't even like, because they know how fucking good it is. And when we get to look at America and go like, shit, we do not want that. Everyone left and right will just go, yeah, we can all basically agree that having healthcare as a basis for society is something that we probably should have now of course in the neoliberal era it's been slowly cut back and access to it hasn't become universal and it never kind of really was but it's always like yeah it's there's a slow drawback of like um of yeah accessibility for everyone like we still have public health or private health care but it's not that large but it's getting larger as the funding for public health care is declining because of austerity and shit like that. So, yeah, like, you know, and we have okay-ish um, safety nets, but even those are still being pulled back. But, like, yeah, it's funny how the, the, the conversation can shift as soon as the, the middle class or whatever and everyone else gets access to these things. They just stop talking about it anymore because it's like, oh, shit, yeah, that was okay. In relation to, like, this idea of, of trying to conceive of the future, like imagining a different future, I want to say that this is a Hegelian idea, but I'm probably not capable of putting it in Hegelian terms. So I'm just going to try to explain it as best as I can without doing so. Uh, but, like, basically it's, like, his discussion of how, like, the material relates to the idea and how there's a mediation between those things and what we call, like, progression, um, you know, is or progress is like the material reflecting into an idea and there's sort of this back and forth between you know us reflecting on what it is that we think society should be and then kind of trying to implement new things and uh he kind of discusses it and after going through this whole dialectical explanation he sort of says what we actually need is not just the material to continue to shift in the correct direction that the idea is steering it but rather we need an appraisal of the material so strong that it actually shifts 
our idea that we're relating to away from the old idea. And it's not so much that the materiality of what we're experiencing needs to change so much as the idea that we're relating it to needs to change. And I, I absolutely agree. Like our material circumstances have to change. And so I'm not just saying like, oh, it's just about ideas. I, I'm, I'm literally saying the opposite. I'm saying the only way for our material circumstances to change is for that overarching structuring idea to shift to something new and for us to be able to reacquire or re-accommodate uh, ourselves to what our material conditions actually are and see the new potential in them. It's kind of like what, I don't know if it was Adam or Jason who said it, but they said it, it takes so much of like radical collective thought just to see five feet in front of our face, right? And I think that this is kind of the reason why is because our structuring principles don't have any space in them for true progress or true radicalization of imagination, right? We, we can only see the things that they have allowed for us to create because that's what we created, you know? And right. so what we need is to be able to reconceptualize where we stand so that we can and see those potentialities in what we have now. I mean, why give uh, certain kinds of business structures over to capitalism as though like they need to be completely destroyed and and reinvented? You know, like if if we do implement some kind of enormous top down structure for restructuring society, like then aren't we just falling victim to the same things that didn't work in the past? Maybe there are things that are salvageable about the way that our lives work now. We would just have to have some kind of tethering to or like anchoring to a new version of like what they serve and mm-hmm. a position of autonomy that the people that participate in them are are in, like a new position of autonomy and not something that is as a, as like a slave to, to a system that doesn't serve them. So first it was it was Adam that said that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> sorry. I, and I was uh, ripping off Ernst Blotch, so big ups yeah. to the OG. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> in a way, in a way, we all said that. <laughs> Alex, I think that that's that's the that's the right formula, and I think that that's how we can have um, when it comes to like practical organizing questions, how we can have both like an adherence to and a commitment to like eminently realizable goals, real benchmarks for success, uh, like you know what you could call like building power. So that the utopian horizon informs um, and is conditioned by those immediately tangible experiences. And that's actually how we start to see like, this is a better version of it because it's based on having one a, a minor struggle or whatever. And I think that's, that's how you actually avoid the pitfalls of what we call reformism, as opposed to, I think what most people uh, want to imagine is the, the pitfall of reformism is trying to achieve small goals. So they go, no, we just only have a utopian imaginary. We only have the revolution, the singular goal. And so I think like the way that this sort of thinking relates practically to questions of socialist organizing is how does your utopian horizon inform the small goal and how does the small goal inform the utopian horizon? So that we're always thinking as, as a series of, I don't know what Lenin called the next link in the chain. So that it's not just, oh, we won this thing and that's good. And now we won the next thing and that's good. It's like, where is the small victory that is the fulcrum for opening up the field for a larger victory? And that sounds abstract, but that's the point. Like we actually have to like in our individual locations with other comrades, we actually have to have an assessment of what the conditions are and uh, and then go from there. And the and the, the utopian horizon is, is, you know, where we're trying to go. And we're just trying to figure out how to actually step into that terrain. I mean, one thing I'll just add that's a little bit of a different layer on this too, I think one of the practical ways that this plays out is to also say, or, or to provide a check on the idea that the revolution is somehow going to make 
a life that you find to be completely unlivable and full of despair that it's somehow going to heal that for you. I mean, to me, it's kind of like, you know, it's that old saying, it's, you know, the dialectical pessimist position like doesn't come offering peace and harmony. It comes offering the sword and division, you know, <laughs> because I think that's like... <laughs> That was I love the, that so much. Yeah, that was for that was for Jason. That's why our new tagline on the show is sever the people. That's exactly what we mean. It's like, no, like this isn't about the idea that, oh, the revolution isn't going to somehow fix every problem in your life. And honestly, if that's why you're so invested in it, then please call me and I'll give you a referral. Like go talk to a fucking therapist. Like it's not to say that like there aren't connections between like the individual and the collective larger structural conditions. But if you think that the revolution has to succeed so you will be able to like face your life tomorrow, I think that that already is a libidinal investment in something that is inevitably always going to fail you. Because the point about bringing fire and division is to say, listen, If the revolution happens, I'm sorry to tell you, but it's going to be very hard. It's not going to fix everything in your life. In some ways, it's probably going to create new contradictions that are unfolding in new ways in different sorts of relationship to each other, right? So that's why I think McGowan is so crucial because no, the revolution will not end those contradictions for you. It's just, but it might shift their coordinates and shift the way that they relate to each other and how the totality is functioning. But again, if the idea is like, like, don't get me wrong, I have deep personal selfish reasons for being very invested in the idea of like the revolution, right? But I think what what I can hopefully say with some confidence is that the idea that, that it happening would fix all the things in my life that terrorize me and haunt me, I hope I can say that I've at least to some degree left that illusion in the past and I've learned how to shift my own coordinates to those things. And it, I think it's helped me actually become a better organizer because now it's, okay, I'm not trying to solve those things because I know that those are going to need to be, either they're always going to persist in new ways or I'm going to solve those in different ways. And so now I can get down to fucking business and get down to fucking organizing and actually being serious about this and doing that concrete analysis of concrete conditions. I think I said it before you know, a long time ago, but I'll say it again. The struggle is not just the one where you cry into your cereal bowl so in the morning. I think that's a good Right. <laughs> it's not just that. I well, mean, like, I guess that's right? a so like yeah. When it comes like the socialist happiness industry, I guess that's a good way to sort of approach it. Is like, no, you're not coming to this organization to to somehow heal your wounds that capitalism has lacerated you with. It's about uh, reorientating the way you relate to how you're being lacerated. I guess it took us two hours, and then finally I get to drop in some Zaddy Todd. In his book, um, um, Emancipation After Hegel, he, he, he adds this point that Adam just brought up where he goes, at each step of the dialect, the image of a possible end to contradiction seems to drive the dialect forward toward another articulation. But the real engine of this movement is the appetite for contradiction. It is contradiction that sustains the subject as desiring, which no one can desire to eliminate. So I feel like that's kind of like the, the way in which to orientate yourself towards not having socialist organizing being this this happiness industry space outside of the corporate happiness industry. It's not like a place to come to, to heal your wounds, but it's almost a place to talk about your wounds, like to lacerate yourself even further, I guess. Will somebody please make an appetite for contradiction meme, which is Axl Rose, but with Hegel said? <laughs> We're going to get on that. Again, I want to I want to monetize every slogan that we make on the Lost Horizons network. I want a shirt, I want a hat, I want a patch. I want everything that says an appetite for, <laughs> for contradiction, volume 1. Also, that was like a really <laughs> beautiful passage to read. That beautiful bald bastard. I love it. <laughs> <laughs>